So when I study Revelation, I look at the seven churches. I'm like, easy, no problem, got this. They're easy. They, they spell themselves out. Where I really got scared about Revelation starts in Revelation 4 and 5. That's where I really get like hesitant. I'm like, oh, no. I, I think that's also kind of where the controversy comes with Revelation a little bit, too. And, um, for example, it talks about a loud trumpet blast or loud trumpet sounds. There's lots of trumpets in Revelation. And for pre-tribbers, we're looking for a trumpet, the last trumpet's where I'm always looking for, because I look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, it says in the, at the last trumpet that that's when the Lord is going to come back. And so we're looking for that trumpet call, and, and we get a voice that sounds like a trumpet. And if you look at the language in Thessalonians, it's kind of a voice that's like a trumpet, but they're a little bit different, because I think this voice like is a, like a loud voice like a trumpet, would be more like the one we see in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, which is where I differ from a lot of pre-tribbers. If you're a pre-tribber, you believe that this is your trumpet call that is calling you to heaven. And praise God, hope you get that. Um, but I just don't think it reads like that, in my opinion. Um, so why is this important? Like I said, if you're pre-tribulation, this is your call to, to heaven. And congratulations, you made it. I guess I haven't felt like I've gotten there yet. Um, and this is the trumpet they're putting all their weight on. And if you look at the context, if you look at the scripture, if you look at how it's written, I don't think it points to the last trumpet. I think the last trumpet points more closer to uh, the one right before God's wrath is poured out onto us, which is either at the three and a half year mark or the seven year mark. I haven't really got there yet on really like defining those but when we get through revelation you'll know because i will have an opinion i'm sure and i'll place it one way or the other so where are we going this morning what are we getting at that was just a minor um snippet that i wanted to get out there because it's part of a lot of people's doctrine so um i don't really think it has much to do with revelation chapter four though but i wanted to get it out there so that was my sermonette, my, my devotional, and now we're into the sermon. Where are we going? When a righteous king is about to act, we better pay attention. When a righteous king is about to act, we better pay attention. Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 through 5 speak to this. And I want you to check out how many times we see the word throne in this passage of Scripture. If you look through the whole chapter it's there 11 times but in this one how many times do you see him so then as i looked this is john talking i saw a door standing open in heaven and the same voice i heard before spoke to me like a trumpet blast and the voice said come up here and i will show you what must happen after this and instantly i was in the spirit and i saw the throne in heaven and someone sitting on it and the one sitting on the throne was a brilliant as gemstones like jasper and carnelian and the the glow of an emerald circled his throne like a rainbow <coughs> excuse me 24 thrones surrounded him and 24 elders sat on them and they 
were all clothed in white and had gold crowns on their heads. And from the crown came flashes of lightning and rumbles of thunder. In front of the throne were seven torches, burning flames, and this is the seven spirit of God. Now, every time I look at this, every time we talk about the throne room, especially in Revelation, it really reminds me of the temple. And the temple is supposed to be an earthly depiction of God's throne room. And if you look at this, it really does a good job. And you kind of wonder why. Well, it's because God designed his own throne room here on earth. And then when they lost the design, he gave it back to them. He's like, hey, have a vision. This is what it's supposed to look like, Ezekiel, and there you go. And he's like, oh, yeah, that kind of does sound familiar. And that is how um, King Herod designed his throne and the new temple after it, and that would be the one that Jesus saw in the day. So our first point today and one that we need to look for and listen to is we need to listen to an all-powerful God. That is something that we always need to do and is an application we always need to adhere to. But what do we see? What we see here is the authority of God. The word throne is mentioned in these first five verses how many times? Yes, six times. And with pronouns, you could stick seven or eight on there pretty quickly, right? So it's mentioned there in the first five, seven times, and 11 times throughout chapter four. So God is prepping to reveal his authority on earth. Where is a good place to start with revealing God's authority but in his throne room, right? And so that is where we start. That's where we start with the the end of time, matter, and space, we start it in with the guy who created time, matter, and space. Pretty good start, I think. So has he done this somewhat, declared his authority in his first coming? Yes, he has, but differently. He's done it through his son, Jesus Christ. But the first coming was about saving the world through God's grace. And that is the period, period we are in right now. We're in God's grace. And you're like, well, don't people still go to hell during this time? Yes, they do. But he gives us an opportunity to choose him, okay, to surrender our lives to him, to recognize that he is the authority in our lives. And that is salvation. When we ask God, we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us of all our unrighteousness that we might be called children of God. So that is salvation in a nutshell. We have to have a confession there. That's what we're looking for, um, justification of our sin, right? So Jesus paid our ransom for our sin. He, we are in debt to Jesus, and Jesus paid this debt in full, That is grace. He could have came and judged the world at that time, but he did not. He decided to leave it open so that we could find out this amazing love that he has for us, right? And today we find ourselves at Palm Sunday. On this day, 2,000 years ago, the people of God, they invited their king into the city as their conquering king. He was their savior, their messiah, 
he had, they had the right idea, but I think their timing was wrong. They wanted a, a conquering king, and God was going to provide them a conquering king, but maybe what he was, he was conquering was sin and death and not necessarily the Romans and this earthly kingdoms that were established, right? So they become offended by this. It's like he's not doing anything to overthrow this established government, and they become offended. And a week later, that same crowd, as we talked about last week, that ushered him in was the same crowd that killed him. However, that was in God's plan as well, to usher in this age of grace. Because we know that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. We find that in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. And by the shedding of blood, by the Son of God, Jesus opened the door that we might be able to stand in the presence of God. By what Jesus did, not by our own good works or our goodness or our good deeds. It is through the perfection Jesus displayed on this earth. Revelation chapter 4 is showing us a God who is set apart as holy. He is in his throne room. He is called back to heaven. He cannot have fellowship one-on-one with man because man is born now with a sinful nature. And he has come up with a plan to eradicate that sinful nature. Revelation chapter 5, as we read just a little bit ago, it shows us how we are able to approach this holiness by the blood of the Lamb and his testimony, and the word of his testimony. Think about that. What do we have to offer this world? We have the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony, right? So what does that look like? It looks like what Jesus did for me. It doesn't look like what Shane can do for the world. It's not my goodness. It's not your goodness. It is Christ's goodness. Praise God, because my goodness falls short. You're like... Amen, it does, right? We all fall short. For all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, right? This is the pinnacle of God's glory. This is what it means to have God's glory. Praise God for that. Praise God that he starts there. And once again, the Lord is giving us a glimpse into heaven, into his throne room. We've seen a glimpse before. We've seen it in Isaiah, yeah, Isaiah chapter 6 and Daniel chapter 7, specifically verse 9. We see into his throne room. Um, if you Google the throne room of God verses for it, uh, you can find 20 really quickly throughout Scripture. But these glimpses that we get, especially the prolonged ones we see here in Revelation chapter 4 and Isaiah chapter 6, really show the majesty, the amazingness, and the definition of awesomeness of God, right? 
when you say something is awesome, the, the thing that you're comparing it to is God himself and maybe a little less specifically his throne room. You're sat in awe and wonder before a holy God. So what do we see? Well, God gives us invitation, gives John, through John, and he says, come up here and I will show you. And John's eyes, they're drawn to the throne, and then they narrow down to someone sitting on the throne, and his focus is drawn to the one on the throne. He is like Jasper. What do we know of Jasper? It's green. Green is life, so he's the life of the world. And then Carnelian, and if you Google either one of those as stones, Carnelian comes up as blood red. And so we have life in the blood and life throughout the earth through plant life and things. So God is life. And the throne, it was an emerald, a rainbow, all the colors, all creation. God is ruler of all, and he gives life to all, right? Do you see how that works out, the correlation, how it flows through there? If God is the almighty ruler of everything, then we are subjects in a kingdom, whether we agree or disagree with the king. Can we agree on that? Okay, think about that. So if God is ruler of all, are we not subjects to a king? Whether we believe God exists, whether we believe that he is the almighty ruler or not, he still is. As Christians, that's what we believe. Now, as a non-Christian, my, my question, especially to an atheist, is why would you sit around and try to justify that there is not a God unless there is one? In your own denial of God, you're kind of proving there's an existence that there is a God. So... Maybe a bit of a word of advice for an atheist is don't even go into the argument because it's not even worth argument because there's not anything to argue about. Unless there is. Unless God's set creation in a way that we can see it, which we know he has. If you look at the stars in the sky and the sun and the moon and the planets and our universe and our galaxy and our planet and how it's formed, how it's made, and then you look at humans and how complex we are and we function, and we function similar. It's not like I'm not so unique that my heart is different than maybe somebody else's in here. Sometimes they are. Sometimes they could be like a three-valver or a, a four-valver, right? But uh, most of the time, we got some pretty amazing things. The human eye is so complex, it baffles people. Think about this, okay? I got a, it wasn't a monocle, but it's a, it's a telescope, like a single-eye telescope for Sawyer for his birthday. And... I'm like, he's like, it doesn't work. And I'm like, yes, it does. So I picked it up, and I'm like, oh, he's like, oh, there it is, because he changed the distance where he was looking at. 
instead of changing the focus manually, well, what I showed him is that you got to bring it in and out because your eye does that automatically. We can focus on something right here next to us and out there at the same time. There's a lot of complexity in that. I'm not even going to get into it because I don't know, but I know when I look through this lens to see far away, I can't bring and focus it um, right on me where my eye can do it instantly. That's amazing. Scientists can't really understand it. They can't explain it. And it's just one little thing in creation and something that's created that proves or points to the existence of a grand designer. And we know that grand designer to be, or intelligent design as it likes to be said, we know that to be God up in heaven. Jesus, his father, Jesus himself. And that's pretty amazing. So if we happen to be, to know this, that we're subjects to this kingdom, we are also subjects to his law, his decrees, and our lives are in his hands. And that is a comfort to those who believe in him. Praise God, he is a God of life. What if he was a God of destruction? Would you want to place your life in a God that was a God of destruction? No, God's purpose is life. That's why we choose life. That's why we promote life at White Rose Fellowship Church. Because God is about life. The more and more I look into his word, the more and more I see it. So then we also see 24 thrones with 24 elders. And we look at this as 2 times 12, and I break it down as the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And I think it's a little interesting there, and it brings a little bit of doubt to me, because John is looking for them at this, and I kind of feel like John's going to be one of those 24. So is he, I don't know how that works. Um, but they're all in white robes. That, that's something we do know. They're all pure. They're all holy before a holy God. They've been purified. They've been sanctified, washed in the blood of the Lamb, and they've been made pure in the presence of our holy God. What else do we see? We see lightning and thunder around this. This, this is declaring God's awesome power. And where do we see something else like this? Where do we see the presence of God with lightning and thunder? This is a reference to an Old Testament passage. Well, we look at Exodus chapter 20. What do we find in Exodus chapter 20? Divide. This is, Dave taught me this. So Exodus chapter 20, you divide by two, you, you're left with 10, right? We find the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. Okay, well, went back and, and did some studying around those things. So we have Mo, Moses on the mountain in the presence of God. Moses on the mountain in the presence of God. That's got some good alliteration there, I'm telling you. That would be a good song right there. Moses in the presence of Moses on the mountain in the presence of God. I don't know. So we also have seven torches 
of, of fire, the seven spirits of God there as well. We also know that re represents the Holy Spirit. It also represents, you could, I don't know if it represents the church, but it's before God in his throne room right there. And I kind of like look at it that way, and I don't know if I'm right on that one. So I know it represents the sevenfold spirits that are there. And where do we see this? We see this in chapter 1, the last verse of chapter 1, which is verse 20. We see this in chapter 2, verse 1, and we see it in 2, 18, and 3, 1. All point to this being the church or the spirit being with the church there. So this represents the Holy Spirit for sure. So what do we have in Exodus chapter 20? We have the Ten Commandments, but let's back up a little bit. To Exodus 19, what does God call his people to do in 19? He calls them to purify themselves, to sanctify themselves, right? That word sanctify, what, what do we have there? Sanctification. Where do we get sanctification in our faith today? It comes after justification. Okay, what is justification? Justification is accepting God's grace that we are not good enough. I'm a sinner. I accept God's grace. I surrender my life to him. I'm justified before a holy God now to stand in your presence. Okay? Now, when I try to walk with God, I'm going to declare that justification. How do we in the church today declare our justification? Yeah, we do it through baptism. So if you want to be baptized in faith, we do it after we're justified before our holy God. And then we walk in sanctification. If only it were as easy as what we could do in the Old Testament. Wash yourselves, clean yourselves. What's that represent? It represents getting the sin out of your life. To walk with before a holy God, you need to be cleansed to do that on a daily basis, which we'll get into in a minute. So what does God command them to do? He commands them to sanctify themselves, set them apart as holy. As we look at the Jewish history, God's called the Jewish people to be set apart as holy throughout the Old Testament. What is one of the things they keep doing? They keep running back to other people around them, especially in sexual immorality, and they start blending. Well, how's that? what's that going to do, Shane? Well, it's going to take the bloodline that God's made pure, and it's going to distort it. Why are they supposed to get rid of these seven nations before them? Well, God told them to. Well, why? Because they've corrupted their bloodline. They've corrupted it with sin, and you can make a strong case that they've corrupted it on a spiritual level as well. But I'm not going to go there this morning. But there's a, if you do the research, you can make a strong case for that. Okay. So what do we else do we have? We have Exodus chapter 20 come. God lays out the Ten Commandments in fire, 
and lightning and thunder is going off. Mark the boundary. Mark the boundary as holy. Do not cross that boundary. Moses, go down and check and make sure no one's crossed that boundary. Because if they cross that boundary, they will surely die. Well, why will they die? Because they weren't purified. They weren't, they, they did a representation of sanctification, but they weren't sanctified until they do it in their hearts, right? Moses was able to figure out that I'm sanctified in here, then I can stand in the presence of God. How did he figure that out? God told him. God showed him. And then God allowed it to happen. And so then he was able to walk in the presence of God. And so then you look at chapters 21 through 31, and it's all these instructions of how they can walk in sanctification, how they can symbolize sanctification in their life. The priests have to do this. Animals have to be sacrificed like this. This all has to happen, and it shows what Christ is going to do 2,000, 4,000 years later. 2,000 years ago for us. So Moses, he's up there for 50 days. Where else do we have a period of 50 days? Yeah, to Pentecost, right? When Jesus sends the Holy Spirit, we see a 50-day period as well. The people saw the thunder and the lightning and fire for 50 days. They were just outside the boundary. We went to bed at night, and I got woke up by the thunder again. It got a little warm last night because the fire was getting a little, a little close for my comfort. So we moved our family back a peg or two from the, the boundary again, right? This is going on right next to them for how long? 50 days. And of course, they just walk in, in the definition of holiness for 50 days, don't they? They are just like the best people no. They get to about day 49, and what happens? We got golden calf. It just popped out of the fire, Moses. I don't know how it happened. It just showed up. That's what Aaron says when Moses comes running down the mountain. It's like, no, stop. What are you doing? He smashes the Ten Commandments. Says, we can't even come close to doing this. They're messing up right now. And there's consequences for those actions, wasn't there? Moses makes him drink the, the gold. He grinds it up fine. He throws it out into the, into the stream, and then they have to drink it, signifying that they can't get to heaven by their own means, that this is their sin before them, and it's dangerous. We are danger. We are danger unto ourselves, aren't we? We can walk in unholiness so fast praise god for his grace and that is that that is the age of grace right god knows we're gonna sin and he still saves us god knows that we are corrupt individuals and he still saves us and he sets us a standard by which we should live he gives us these commands then he sends his son his son sets a perfect example of how to live out those commands. You can't live up to his standards, so he is going to be your savior. And in that salvation, we come to 
fast forward to Jesus on to Palm Sunday, and they, they don't necessarily see Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, but they definitely hear about it. That was half the reason that the crowd was so big, right? Because they, they went ahead. Dude, you're not going to believe this? I'm sure they said dude too. And, <laughs> but Jesus just raised Lazarus from the dead. No, no, I saw him four days. He was really sick. I saw him a week ago. He was sick. There's no way he was going to pull out of that. I heard he died. He did die. Who's that guy next to Jesus? Who's that guy walking next to Jesus? It was Lazarus. He was right there. They saw the result of God raising somebody from the dead through Jesus, and he was going to do it again through himself. How did these same people respond? Well, in both cases, they're standing in the presence of God. You know, 6,000, 5,000 years ago, whenever... Uh, the, they created the golden calf. 50 days later, on one, 49, they go right into sin, or in, in the other case, it was six or seven days later, right? They turned their backs on God. He wasn't real enough for them. The thunder and lightning is just a phenomenon. It's not really God. It's not really him. He doesn't really care. He's a God... An angry God, obviously, because, wow, can you imagine the grace that God had at that moment to come down in that form and only give fire, lightning, and thunder because he is holding back his power so much because he would destroy us in the presence of holiness that I'm going to contain it within this boundary? An infinite God contained himself for us? Whoa. Whoa. That's a different perspective of looking at that scenario, isn't it? Same thing with Jesus. A perfect God contained himself in the vessel of human so that he could die for us. So we're left with the same choice. Are we building on a spiritual foundation that the Lord can build on? Or are we crumbling in the presence of God when we crucified Christ for our comfort. I'm willing to admit, and I have turned, I have turned my back on God in his presence more than once. Praise God, the story is not about what I do. It's not about what we do, and it's not about what you do, is it? And when we make it about us, we've missed the story. Furthermore, our witness is not about what we do. It's not about what you do. It's not what about the church does. It's about what God does and what he has done. He is our rescuer. We know we're going to fall into sin. We know it. He knows it. And he continues to rescue us. Praise God. We are now better than anybody else. And we have the same God pursuing us with a passion that we cannot understand. He is pursuing the world. He is pursuing you on Facebook. He is pursuing me as a pastor. He is pursuing us as a congregant. We are no better or worse than any 
anybody else. We are all equal at the foot of the cross. We all have sinned. We all have chosen to turn our back on him. Some of us have recognized that. Some of us have recognized that brokenness and that we need a Savior. How can we get out of the mire and the muck? Jesus reaches down. He pulls us out. Praise God for his son, Jesus Christ. If we don't have him, we don't have life. It's simple as that. But that choice to reach up and grab that hand, whoo, man. You're saying I got to give up my free will? Is that what you're saying? Well, somewhat. Right? Am I giving up my free will? I'm choosing to worship a holy God is what I'm doing. I'm choosing to put him first. So in that aspect, yes, I am going to look at life through him. But it's still my choice. If I could surrender my choice of free will, I think I would, honestly. I'd be like, yep, you can just have it. Um, And that way I don't have to worry about sinning anymore. Right? It's not that simple. Every time I choose to walk away from God, I'm using the power of my free will to walk away. Right? So I'm not giving up my free will. I am choosing, 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 it's a new word. That's right. I'm choosing to sin. Sanctification is the process of turning from sin and walking to Christ by taking up his cross daily. Christian, if the world doesn't see you doing this, there's no reason for them to do it. We are the example. And if we are setting a poor example, who really cares about being a Christian? Right? So what's the best example that I can give? It's not me. I'm going to let you down every time. It's about Jesus. I need to learn how to get myself out of there and give glory to God. When I'm at work and I do a good job, my boss recognizes that. It's like, well, praise God that he gave me the ability to do this because I know I couldn't do that on my own. I just gave God the glory there. Well, you're such a good gardener. You're such a good gardener. Well, no, I'm not. Uh, God allows the plants to grow where I put them, right? There's, there's ways to turn the praise to the Lord. That's my point, okay? We need to look at there. So there's no reason for the, the world to turn their life over to God if we haven't turned over our glory to him, is there? Follow the example of our Savior. Jesus was always constantly looking to God the Father and what he should do, how he should do it, and when he should do it. Shine bright in a dark world. Your neighbor is depending on it. Love your neighbor as yourself. If we don't do that, your neighbor, he's lost. Because you didn't set the example of how to give your glory over to the Lord. 
you gave your glory to you so that you, they led themselves to you, but you didn't give it to the Lord, right? That, there's danger in that. We will be held accountable for that. Remember that, Christian. So how do I get there? How do I do this? Well, good. I got some application for you. Prepare your heart. Repent on a daily basis. Remember, it is not about my glory. It's about the Lord's glory. Prepare your heart. Prepare your mind. Set your focus in the morning. Write on a note card. Write on a piece of paper, something. Stick it on your wall next to your bed. So you wake up, you look at that, and you remember, I'm giving the Lord this day the, the Lord's prayer or as I like to call it, the disciples' prayer, would be a great prayer to pray every morning because it has the basics down. It's about God. It's not about me. Give me enough to get by, but don't give me enough that I'm going to think too boastfully about myself. Give us today our daily bread kind of thing. Set your focus in the morning. Lord, you got to be greater. I must become less. There's a song by Auto Adrenaline that says, um, I want to say a prayer before my feet hit the ground. Lord, I give this day to you. That's my alarm clock that I wake up to every morning lately. And um, that's a good reminder. So it reminds me, it's not I, but Christ, right? So prepare your lifestyle. Actively look for opportunities to intersect Jesus in your daily walk. When was the last time you even talked about Jesus with a coworker? Is that scary? Well, one, that should be a little convicting. And two, it's not as scary as we like to make it think. Okay? That's a lot of us building it up for our own self. And you're going to find out that people really are interested in Jesus. And if you can point that Jesus is why you are the way you are, and you're displaying that change, then that's a pretty strong testimony itself. Have we arrived? No. But that's part of the testimony, isn't it? Think about that. We are still broken, and God still accepts us. Well, I've seen you do that. Yeah, and God still loves me. Okay? So prepare your lifestyle. At the end of the day, then, review. How'd you start your day? Did you remember to pray that prayer? Did you remember to surrender your life over to the Lord? Did you remember to... To ask God to guard your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength as you give it over to him. So how did you start your day? And was Christ involved in your day? When you're thinking about that project at work, did you ask Christ about it? When you're thinking about laying out your, your for those of you retired gardeners, how you're laying out your garden, did you, did you ask God about it just it's as simple as, what do you think, Lord? It's okay to involve him in those little things. It is. I've always, I've seen that happen like, wow, moments. Um, was God, was Christ involved in your day in prayer, in speech, and in actions? It's a good review at the end of the day. Was he involved in my day, my speech, and my prayer, and my actions? If it's yes, good. Can I do better? If it's no, 
that I didn't really, I wasn't very Christ-like today. Therefore, I wasn't a very good Christian today. And I know it's not dependent on my goodness, but I need to ask for forgiveness now. <laughs> right? That's how it works. And then get back at it the next day. It's as simple as building little blocks every day. When a righteous king is about to act, we better pay attention. Revelation chapter 4, verse 6 through 11. In front of the throne was a shiny sea of glass, sparkling like crystal. In the, in the center around the throne were four living beings, each covered with eyes from front to back. The first of these Living beings was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third was like a human face. The fourth was like an eagle in flight. Each of these living beings had six wings, and their wings were covered all over with eyes, inside and out. Today, day after day, and night after night, they kept saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, the mighty, the one who always was, who is, and who is to come. Whenever the living beings give glory and honor and thanks to the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fell down and worshiped the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and they exist because you created what you pleased. The second point, our final point today, he has our lives in his hands. We have four living beings. Four deals with the world. You think of the cardinal directions, north, west, north south, east, and west. I was just going to put them all in one word. Wow. They have eyes all over. They're all seeing. This represents God. He knows everything that is going on. He is sovereign overall he doesn't need these four beings to see everything but they see everything throughout the earth as well he is not omniscient which means he is all-knowing he knows what is going on in all his kingdom god the father is set apart as holy how holy is he he's so holy they got to say it three times okay is there significant in that Yes, there is, especially in the original Hebrew. If you were to say holy, they'd be holy. If you would say holy times holy, holy, you would be 10 times holy, holier than the average bear. You may call, um, you may call the temple holy, holy, but the one who resides in the temple is holy, holy, holy. You don't see it in the Bible very often where they use the same adjective three times. Most of the time, it represents God, and most of the time, it's talking about holiness. I think there's one other time I, can, I came up with that they said three words the same. So what do we have here? We have God the Father set apart as holy. He's all-knowing. Think about this. He is the perfect being, the perfect person, because he is a person, to judge he is the perfect ruler. We have the four living creatures. They are seen by Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 4 through 24. We have the lion, represents glory. We have the ox, who represents strength. We have man, who represents intelligence and wisdom. We have the eagle, who represents the supernatural. They re represent the 
four mighty characteristics of God. His majesty and glory, characteristic number one, power, all-knowing, and supernatural, who was and is and is to come. He is not bound by time. He is not bound by matter. He is not bound by space. He always was, always is. He is infinite. Can I describe him better than that? Only through the person of Jesus Christ. Because the finite can't define the infinite more than that. So when you ask, well, who created God? Which we were asked this Thursday. Who created God? I don't know. I can't tell you that. But I can tell you about God from his creation standpoint in Jesus Christ, right? And so when I have Jesus as the example of God, I have the character of God, and that's all that I necessarily need to trust in that kind of God. So there's a part of worship they're, they're, they're a part of the worship given to the God Almighty. They represent the best of the best. They represent the best glory, the best majesty, the best of knowledge, the best of everything, and they still claim God is better. Think about that. They're the best of the best, and God's still better than they are. They get it. How come I can't get it, right? So he is so much better. They keep declaring it day and after day, night after night. This is the impression that most people get of heaven. Heaven's going to be boring. We're going to stand around praising God, and it's just going to be boring. Is that all we're going to do? I don't know. I really don't. And um, if it is, I think there's going to be different ways to express our praise to God other than just declaring it through voice. I, there's many times I've given God the glory through maybe it's playing sports or playing an instrument or playing um, things. And notice I say it's playing. It's fun. It's majestically fun. I will not have my sin nature there worrying at me like, okay, you've, said the, you've sang the bridge enough. No, I haven't. <laughs> oh, no, I haven't right? We will be there in pure joy. So it doesn't really matter. It's the fact that we're going to be full of joy. It would be better than what we can even ask or imagine. Guess who created my imagination? God did, right? I'm sure he can come up with some creative ways to worship him than just saying the same phrase over and over. There's a, there's a point to this is that God is holy. We are not. He is worthy. We are not. We are recognizing that in this moment, okay? That's what this is about. So we're, so I, I think, is this how it's going to be? I don't know. Because if you look around, do we see a multitude of people around him? No, we don't. We only see the 24 elders around at this point. And so I'd, I feel we're not even at heaven at this point. And so will it change as we get to heaven? It just might it just may. All right. We also see these creatures in Isaiah chapter 6. I assume they're the same ones, uh, though my commentaries won't necessarily come right out and say it. I mean, if it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it's probably a seraphim, right? Most likely, they're, they're the same things. He calls them seraphim in, 
in Isaiah chapter 6. He records them saying about the same things, the 24 elders. They set an example of how we are to serve like we do, like I explained in communion last week, the elders set the example in serving one another by serving you. We are supposed to serve first. That is our job. We are here as servants to the church. If it looks any different than that, then you need to call us out as a congregation. Right? In humility, hopefully. As we lay our crowns at the feet of Jesus on communion by asking for forgiveness, asking that he come and make us right with him again, so these elders on the throne lay their crowns at his feet, declaring that he is worthy of the crown. We are not. You get the praise. You get the glory. You get the majesty. We only have these here to show that we are giving up what we have to you. And they're okay with that. And so am I. I'm okay with giving my glory up to the Lord. Because what's he do with that? He asked me to be a steward of that crown. Take it back and be a steward of it. Which means I need to serve him the best way I know how to. Like on Palm Sunday, the people, they start correctly. They give worship where worship is due. But like the Israelites of old, they're deceived. They turn away from Jesus away from their Savior, and they're convinced each other that it's better to test their Savior in death. If he really is the Messiah, he can come right off that cross. They start justifying their actions. If he really is the Messiah, he won't die. He'll defeat death. Let's see him come off that cross. Let's see what he does after he gets beat. Let's see what he does. That's me justifying my sin right there. Well, if he's really God, he can forgive me after I'm done. Or he, now that I've yelled at my kids, I can uh, ask for forgiveness. That's, not, that's arrogant. That's so arrogant, right? I'm telling God what he can do. There's no brokenness there. That's ridiculous. Guess what? God loves me anyway. For this is how God loved the world, that he gave his own one and only son, that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged, not believing in God's one and only son. Let's break these three verses down down quickly in closing let's break it down to the gospel message god loved the world how much that he gave the most precious thing that he could ever have his one and only son his only begotten son that he may have eternal life if we submit and believe in him why did god did god send his son well he sent him the first time he sent got his son not to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. He became the perfect payment for our sin of the world because he was sinless. He was worthy. Conclusion, if we submit to God's grace, 
to his gift of grace, this is not judgment. We will not be judged for our sins. Christ took that judgment, did he not? He made that payment. Jesus Christ is our payment. There's no need for us to pay. There's no need for us to do good works. There's a need for us to submit, and then out of the overflow of that, then we do good works. If we do not believe, we stand condemned right now. We are under judgment. When Jesus comes back the second time, we will taste God's wrath. And that's scary. That should scare every one of us. Right? Jesus' second coming, it will not be pleasant for those who choose not to follow Jesus. When a righteous king is about to act, we better pay attention. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for a way out, a way out of hell, Lord. We thank you for the payment. Um, Lord, we, we are in sorrow for the, the payment that, what it costs. It costs you your son. It costs you everything. The thing that you love the most, you gave it up to show us how much you loved us. Lord, we praise you, we glorify you, and we surrender. Lord, allow your spirit to well up within us so that we might overflow into this world a little bit of the love that you've given us. Lord, allow us to see areas in our life that we can give you the credit. Allow us to give the glory to you on a daily basis. Allow our hearts to surrender to you before a holy God and that we might go out and share the love of Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would invite our neighbor to Easter Sunday. I pray that you would um, be the glory in that service, in that invitation and ultimately the salvation to those that don't know. Uh, guide and direct us this week. Lead us, protect us as we go. We ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed.